The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. We'll be reading Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 through 22, which again is on page 222. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to, your, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, why you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The word of the Lord. Our Father, we thank you that you speak. It's who you are. You're a speaking God. Uh, you've spoken most clearly through your very Son, the Lord Jesus, who you sent for us to save us from our sin, to bring us to yourself. 
Uh, You speak through this word, Lord, this inspired, inerrant word that we want to hear from even now. And Lord, by your spirit, we trust and believe that you're going to speak in this moment. That as we hear your word together, as we understand it correctly, you're speaking to each one of us. And so, Lord, we pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would preach the perfect sermon that I am never going to preach. That you would preach that sermon that each one of us needs to hear way down deep. Uh, You know who we are before you, where we stand before you, the aches and hurts and bitterness in our heart. You know where we need you and your healing, and so we pray that you would just bring it, that you would bring it to us as we hear your word together. We pray this in Jesus' name because of what he's done. Amen. Have you ever awakened one morning to find that life is tasting pretty bitter? Do you experience that? Bitterness, I think, has two aspects to it. One is, obviously, unpleasantness. I do not like this. It hurts. Uh, but there's a second aspect, I think, to bitterness, and that's the idea of hopelessness. Because anybody can go through a little bit of pain for a little bit, but when it keeps going and going and going, and it seems like there's no way out, it seems like it's a long-term thing, it gets bitter. And we all know, uh, many of you, probably most of you know better than I do, that life can bring some bitter circumstances. Some of us know, many of you know, stinging loss. Think of the bitter pills that we have to swallow sometimes when it comes to career or finances or our relationships or dreams and expectations we had or our health But more than life bringing bitter circumstances, isn't it all too easy to develop bitter hearts? Bitter hearts. We become, what, angry, resentful, cynical because of our perception of these experiences. We become bitter towards life, bitter towards others, bitter towards God. Are any of you bitter towards God? What do, you, what do you tend to do when life is tasting bitter? Uh, maybe let's just numb ourselves with entertainment, right? Just keep piling it on. Or uh, there's probably things that are even more unhelpful than that, what we latch on to looking for some sort of distraction. But a lot of times we're tempted to withdraw, aren't we? You ever been too sad to go to church? That's ironic, isn't it? We withdraw from God, we withdraw from his people, we're bitter towards life, sometimes we're bitter towards God himself. What are we to do? The answer to that question is part of what the book of Ruth is all about. In this book, the seventh book of the Bible, it's just this exquisite story. In this book, we meet someone who's a lot like us. She's experienced life at its most bitter. Her name's Naomi, right? And the name Naomi means pleasant. And she says, did you hear it? Don't be calling me that anymore. I'm changing my name, Mara. You know what Mara means? Bitter. It's just bitter. She's bitter towards everything. But slowly, slowly in this book, she'll remember. She'll see. She'll meet again 
the sovereign God who in, through, and from bitterness always redeems his people. And that's my hope and prayer for you. I think that's the point of God's word for you today is you'll remember, maybe meet for the first time, maybe remember in a fresh way that even in, through, there's a sovereign God who always redeems his people. Always. From bitterness. It may take some time, but we have a redeemer. So we're just going to dive right into the, this is going to take four weeks, I think, in Ruth, okay? And I'm just going to dive right into the, kind of the first episode. Have you ever watched, I don't know, the Hallmark Channel or something? There's a mini-series with four episodes. Let's play it like that, okay? Um, I won't be doing a lot of crying or anything like that. I'm just, it, it's, four, it's four episodes, okay? And so we're going to get in the first episode today. So, you know, it's a little strange teaching through a story, because I'm only doing kind of first part of the story. You probably know how the story goes. We'll get to how the story ends later. This is like episode one, okay? So we're just going to dive in, and hopefully along the way, we'll pick up on the historical context we need to understand this. We'll try to do some of that. We'll try to pick up on themes that move this book along, themes that you need to hold on to, that you want to write in that little journal, that you want to remember. Try to pick up on those themes. And so we'll do that with three... um, If this is episode one, we'll have three chapters today, okay? Chapter one, number one, the bitterness. That's what this first chapter is about a lot, in a lot of ways. The bitterness, when life is bitter. So we'll think about that. Number two, the surprise. There is something in this chapter that is shocking in the midst of the bitterness. It's shockingly beautiful. So we'll see that surprise. And then number three, we'll see the return. So that's how this chapter ends, is with a return, and that's kind of God's invitation to you. Return. Return, even in the midst of the bitterness, okay? So let's get started. First chapter, episode one, number, number one. The times, circumstance, and, and maybe regrets have left Naomi bitter. First of all, the times were bitter. Look at verse one. In the days when the judges ruled, that's a huge contextual clue for the author to throw at you. In the days when the judges ruled, there's a famine in the land. Well, what are we to do with that? It reminds us a lot of things, two things most important probably. It reminds us of a broken people in a languishing land. A broken people in the languishing land. Who are the broken people in this context in the time of the judges? It's the people of Israel, okay? This is, notice it's the land. Um, what land would we talk about as being the land? It's the promised land. The promised land for who? The people of Israel, God's people. And yet, these people are a mess. They're a broken people in a languishing land. The times were bitter. Uh, I just want to back up a little bit here to help, to help it make sense for you. If you're maybe a little bit newer to reading the Bible or newer to Christianity, I want to give a little context as to why on earth we even care about this. Okay, let's back up all the way to the whole, the biblical storyline. You know, we're going through the story of Ruth. Did you know the Bible's one story? It really is. How is, gonna, how is God going to redeem broken, sinful, undeserving people to himself? That's what the story's about. And so if you go back to the beginning, you meet this God who's good and holy, and he makes creation wonderful, beautiful. It's good, 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 right? You've read that? It's good. And then the top part of his creation, Adam and Eve, Human beings, 
Male and female, made in his image. What does that mean? Well, it means they're like him in so many ways so that they can represent him on the earth. They can be like him on the earth and enjoy satisfaction with him in the place that he has provided for them. It's perfect. It's so good. And yet what happens all too quickly? What's our problem? You ever ask that question? What is our problem? You ask that question to your kid. What's your problem? To your friend, what's your problem? You watch the news, what's the problem? Everybody's asking that question. What's the problem? What's your answer? The Bible will tell you the problem is sin. We have each rebelled against God. Adam and Eve started it. They bought the lie, first part of the lie, God's not good. He's not good. Why, why would you look here to be satisfied? Second part of the lie, his word's not true. Don't submit, to, don't submit yourself to this. Make, make, make something up on your own. Be your own authority. God's not good. His word's not true. If you believe those two things, you'll replace God with something else. That was the lie they bought. That's, that's how sin comes into effect. They believe the lie, and they rebel against God, and they sinned in the fall. That's the problem. The fall. But according this biblical storyline, God is gracious, and he's going to redeem, buy back people to himself at his own cost. Strangely, it starts with this one guy named Abraham, and we learn from Abraham the way you get right with God isn't to make yourself perfect, because you can't. It's to trust him, and he will do the work to make you perfect. You trust him, Saved by grace through faith. And so God says, through Abraham, Abraham's going to become a family. The family's going to become a nation. And who's the nation? Abraham's children? Well, it's Israel. Israel's enslaved to Egypt. Can't do anything to save themselves. God comes, redeems them mightily, takes them out to the promised land, right? And again, it's almost like Eden part two. These are people made in God's image to know him, to represent him on the earth with the idea that through them, all the nations of the earth could meet the God, the creator God of the universe who saves. And so God made his covenant with them. You could call it the Mosaic covenant because it was through Moses. You could call it the old covenant. Why do we call it the old covenant? Anybody know? Because there's a new one, okay? We're not under the old one anymore. But this story, where does the story fit in? The old one. So don't we need to understand a little bit of the old one to make sense of the story? Here we are. It's the time of judges. God has made a covenant with his people. They are to show everyone how great God is. There are a couple of important principles that are Uh, unique to that old covenant that are different from the covenant we're in today. Number one, worship and land were connected. Worship and land were connected. During the old covenant, if you want to meet the real God, if you want to be right with him, where do you go to do that? You go to Israel. There's the ministry of the priests there. There's the sacrifice in the tabernacle there. there. There's the law there. There's the covenant there. There's the people of God there. Worship and land are connected. Is that true today? Uh, Can you only worship God when you're in this special room? No, it's ridiculous, right? This room is just a way to house our church. How how do you worship God today in the new covenant? Well, just like what you're doing, you meet with people who trust themselves to Jesus Christ according to his word, and that's happening right now all over the world 
in nation after nation after nation. Worship is no longer tied to land anymore. It's tied to Jesus Christ and his people. Can I get an amen for that? Okay. Second thing that's a little different. In the Old Covenant, generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking, physical blessing went with spiritual faithfulness. Read Deuteronomy 28, okay? This was to be an example, a case study to the nations. If you trust the living God and follow him faithfully, God says, I will bless you. Economic blessing, health blessings. The, the earth is so fruitful blessings, and you'll have lots of kids' blessings, okay? That's the old covenant. So there was a, generally speaking, physical blessing went with spiritual faithfulness. Vice versa, if you're spiritually rebellious, guess what God threatens in the old covenant? Physical suffering, famines, no fruit. You'll lose the land, exile. Be barren, no kids. And it's really important to point this out. Is that the way it works in the new covenant? I want to ask you right now, answer honestly. Do you take God's sense of love for you and blessing to you based on how well your circumstances are going? Should you? It's not the same in the new covenant. It's explicitly not the same in the new covenant. Now, let's be honest. Can you make bad choices that lead to some nasty consequences? Yes. Would anyone like to give an example, you know? Yes, obviously. But friends, friends, listen. There's nothing in the new covenant that says um, the more you sin, the harder your life will get experientially in this life. In fact, many times people who are wicked have easy lives. Easy. And and there's nothing that says if you're obedient, you're you're, (laughs) lottery tickets, you know? Uh, your car will never, it's not in there. In fact, look at the, the case in point, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God. Guess what he did? He suffered. Look at the apostles, faithful, they suffered. Okay, but so we have to see those two principles because they're taking part in this story, but it's not part of our story because we're in a different covenant. Does that make sense? Bitter times. Why do I say this? It's the time of the judges. And if you read the last two chapters or so of the book of Judges, you see Israel, the people of Israel, meant to glorify God as they live faithfully to him. They are a dumpster fire. They are awful. They are immoral, unethical, civil wars, disobedience, idolatry everywhere. They're terrible. They blaspheme the name of God. Have you ever, have you ever been sick of the church because you say there's just too many hip- hypocrites? You ever, you ever thought that before? That's what's going on in Judges par excellence. Nothing but hypocrisy. And you know what? You might have given up on the church, but guess who never did? God never did. And are any uh, recovering hypocrites glad about that out there? I'm glad about that. But we're in the time of the judges. Just a a few more things on that. Look at Judges 10.6. Judges 10.6. This is what Judges is like. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Served the Baals, the Asherah, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon. The gods of who? Moab. The gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and they did not serve him. You see, so, so they're replaying what Adam did again. 
God's not good, his word's not true, let's replace him with idols. And then look at Judges 21, 25. This is how things went in those days. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You wanna see how that looks? Read the, read the last few chapters of Judges. But just a little question right there. Does that sound good to you if you could always do what was right in your own eyes? Some of you are thinking, oh yeah, that would be the sweet life. Judges shows us, maybe not. And are any of you fed up a little bit with a lifestyle like always doing what was right in your own eyes and you're realizing this is not good? <laughs> That's where they were. Do you, think that effect, do you think that affected Naomi and her family to live in the times of the judges? Of course it did. The times were bitter. Hopefully that helps with a little context of the story. Not only the times were bitter, the circumstances were bitter. We saw that in verses one to five. You, you can imagine what kind of choice this was for Elimelech, right? He has a choice for his family. Ironically, the city of Bethlehem, Bethlehem means house of bread. Guess what it doesn't have any of? It has no bread. And so he has this choice. If I stay, if I keep my family in this land God gave to my family, my tribe, it will be rough. Or I can leave home and go literally, and the text says this again and again, the translators don't always get it, to the fields of Moab. The fields of Moab are calling, because what are the fields of Moab? Promise. Food. Famine in Bethlehem, food in Moab. Moab had these high plains that were often more fertile, and they were calling. What, what would you do? You can feel that choice, Right? Hard choice in bitter times, what would you do? He makes the practical choice and he takes his family to Moab. And over the years, uh, it's Naomi's worst nightmare. Isn't, th isn't this your worst nightmare? And some of you have experienced some of this. It's your worst nightmare. The family chooses to move. You, you leave your culture, you leave your land. In a way, in a way, you, you leave a connection with God. And then over the years, what happens to Elimelech? He dies. She's left without a husband. Her boys are left without a father. Then she loses her son, Malon. Please God, anything but that, right? Then she loses her son, Chilion. Please God, anything but that. And that's what happens. Bitter, bitter circumstances. You know, in a way, I hope I'm not digging up anything for you. I didn't want you to come here and feel deep sorrow. Uh, but in another way, are you a little bit glad God's honest? Do people go through bitter circumstances? Does that mean he's not working? Not just bitter times, bitter circumstances. Uh, and you know, it, you see, obviously, you can feel the pain of loss for her, losing these relationships, but it's not just the, the pain of losing those relationships. In the ancient world, which was mainly patriarchal, a lot more violent, a lot more uh, unstable, there's, there's not welfare, okay? And if you're left as an old widow with no children to provide for you, that is the definition of a hopeless future. It's hopeless. And so you got bitter times, times of the judges, bitter circumstances. I wonder too if there's a little bit of the bitterness of regret. I'm, 
It's an interesting question. Do you think Elimelech should have left Bethlehem due to the famine? Think, think, of, think of the stakes on this. Uh, you're going to a place where there's a different God and a different worldview. Remember, worship is tied to land. In Moab, they worship Chemosh. You know what Chemosh likes, the god Chemosh? Child sacrifice. That's the kind of God this is. It's gnarly. It's a gnarly culture. And so Elimelech, he, he chooses to, to leave the land. And if you, if, you, if you study the text, you see a little bit of transition. It's first, it's, hey, let's go sojourn. And that's probably the idea of, we'll just go for a little and then you look up, and how long have they been there? They moved in. They moved in. Uh, this brief sojourn became permanent. And, their, and her sons marry Moabite women. So I want to be really clear here. There is nothing at all wrong with interracial marriage, okay? In fact, the whole Bible, and this book especially, makes that clear. It's often something to be celebrated. So I want to make that really clear. Interracial marriage be beautiful, but this this might uh, confront you a little bit. Biblically speaking, there's something very wrong with interfaith marriage. Interfaith marriage. The reason for that is because there's nothing more important than to be in love and to worship the living and true God. And marriage is so intimate and so forming on you and future generations that an interfaith marriage is going to pull us away from devotion to our God. Now listen, if you're in one, be faithfully married. God works. God redeems. God forgives. But if you're choosing who to marry, and if you love Jesus, what's the Bible going to tell you? Marry a Christian. And so we see what's happened as they went to the fields of Moab. They've left the place where you worship the living and true God. They've left the place as the land of their forefathers, and now they're being immersed more and more into a culture that denies the living and true God. And you realize this, this is the very thing that's going to ruin Israel, ultimately. Do you remember what Solomon did, that second king of Israel? Look at 1 Kings 11.4. When Solomon was old, what happened? His wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. And this is interesting for our story. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh. Who's that? The abomination of Moab. Do you know what that word abomination means? This is grossly evil. And so you see in context, right? I mean, it's kind of ironic, isn't it? What was Elimelech fearing for his family when he thought of moving to Moab? What would Bethlehem bring? Famine and death. And he, it's, it's going to be death to say, he's thinking, right? And so I've got to do what's best for my kids. And so he chases the field of Moab so that they can live and thrive. And what happens to him? He dies. And what happens to his kids? They die. It seemed like the practical, obvious choice. And it horribly backfired. My goal is not blame here, but I can't help but think that that is on Ruth's, or Naomi's mind somehow. Wouldn't it be on your mind? 
Have you ever had regret about decisions you've made? In something that you thought was practical and obvious, you realize, maybe I was unfaithful. And that's part of what Ruth is dealing with. Look at how she talks, or sorry, Naomi. This is, what, this is part of what Naomi's dealing with. Look at how she talks in Ruth 121. This is what Naomi says. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has what? Testified against me. And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Now, she knows God's in control, right? And I bless Naomi for that. She's not playing around. She knows who's in control. And yet, what does she perceive his attitude towards her to be? What does that phrase mean? He testified against me. It has the idea of I'm guilty and he's punishing me. That's why I think there's regret here. And so there's something worth considering. I want to give this to you for a few minutes. Friends, be very careful about ever trading a perceived lifestyle famine for a spiritual one. Do you hear what I'm saying? He feared a lifestyle famine, right? No food in Bethlehem. And yet when when Naomi goes back to Bethlehem, guess what's there? People. Evidently they made it somehow. Moreover, now there's bread again. So it's this idea that maybe, maybe we, we, we didn't have to leave. We could have stayed. But that fear of a lifestyle famine pushed them into a spiritual famine. Have you ever done this before? Have you ever thought it's just not practical to worship God or be faithful to him? It's not going to work. And so therefore, I need to chase this myself. There's a, there's a million ways this occurs in our lives, right? It could, you could fear a financial famine, and so maybe you're willing to lose some integrity at work, and now you have a spiritual famine of hypocrisy. There could be a perceived famine of love. I need love in my life, but you know what God's calling you to and what, what kind of a person you ought to be pursuing, and when that doesn't come, you say, well, maybe I don't need to date or pursue someone who loves Jesus. And it leads to a spirit, that fear of a lifestyle famine leads to a spiritual famine. Or we want opportunities for our kids, right? And now these hobbies and these sports and these things, they happen, when do they happen, folks? On Sunday morning. And I fear my kids missing out. And, you know, at church. Anybody done that before you know it? Your fear of a lifestyle famine took you to a spiritual famine. It happens. We've all done it. It's part of our sin. I mean, Abraham himself is the ultimate example, right? God promises, I'm going to make a nation through you and your kids. Abraham and Sarah are like, it's been years. This is impossible. So what, what does Abraham do? If God won't redeem and bless me, well, I'm going to do the only practical thing, Abraham and Sarah think, and will impregnate Hagar from Egypt. By the way, if you know that story, did that lead to joy for him or pain? Pain. Pain. Part of the bitterness in our lives sometimes, not every time, part of the bitterness in our lives sometimes is when due to a fear of a lifestyle famine, we trade that for a spiritual one. And you're like, wow, thanks for beating me up, you know? Because we've got bitter times, times of the judges. Maybe you feel like our times today are bitter. you got bitter circumstances. Everyone in her life is dead. 
feels like. And then you have bitterness of regret. And we're like, the trinity of bitterness. Thanks, Pastor Matt. The reason we bring that up, friends, we'll just pause right here, is because God still redeems in and through and from our bitterness. It's not too late. It's not over. He still acts. He still saves. He still heals. He still forgives. And that's what you need to see. So I hope you can relate with Naomi, but now we're going to see the surprise. It starts, God redeeming begins with the surprise. So starting in verse 6 now, Naomi says goodbye, right? She hears, I love this phrase, uh, verse 6, the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, back in those old days when, you know, subsistence living was more common and food was maybe more rare and a famine could really knock in the chin, right? Um, Having a lot of food is a great thing. You and I, I don't know about you, but my main problem is not, I wonder if I'll have food to eat today, (laughs) right? We have the opposite problem. Quit eating all the food, (laughs) right? Um, But do you realize what the Bible is saying here? How come there's food? Because God, in his kindness and his providence, has enabled there to be food. Did you know that? Food is God's kindness. And we're so technologically savvy now, right? Hey, do you remember in the middle of the beginning of COVID crazy, I went to Smart and Final, and I felt like I had traveled to a third world country. There was nothing on the shelves. We don't have meat, and we especially don't have what? Toilet paper, because two of you had all of it. Still bitter. (laughs) I'm kidding. But didn't you get a picture then of like, you know what, even in all our uh, economic, you know, chutzpah, like it's fragile. It's fragile. You don't think nations and economies can't fall and depressions can't occur? They can. And when we have food, it's because God is kind, right? So when you eat lunch to get today, you say, Lord, thank you for visiting me. Despite all my flaws, thank you, Lord, for visiting. The Lord visited. And that inspires Naomi to return. She's going to return. So she sets out from the place, and I won't go into the detail, verses 7 to 14. Basically, she begins to leave, and it would be tradition that the daughter-in-laws would kind of follow with her and go with her on their way. And obviously, in context, these ladies love each other, don't they? They had a deep and a real relationship of commitment to one another. They had a special relationship. No more jokes about the in-laws, right? They love their mother-in-law. It's plain. It's clear. And so they begin to, to walk out. Verse 8, Naomi says, ladies, go return to your mother's house. The reason it's mother's house is because it has to do with arranging the marriages. The idea is go get married and have a life. I can't provide for you. Go get married and have a life. I can't provide for you. And she blesses them in the name of the Lord. I just want to point this out because just because Naomi is bitter doesn't mean she has no faith at all. In fact, doesn't it take a little bit of faith to be bitter at God? If you're bitter at him, that means he exists, and he's strong. He's actually in control of things, and he knows what's going on in your life. That's a lot of faith in this God. 
She still has faith in this God. And so even though they're in Moab, she blesses these ladies in the name of the Lord. May it be the Lord, the God of Israel. It's not going to be Chemosh. May it be the God of Israel who gets you the stability you need. Then they're like, no, we're going to stay with you. And then verses 10 to 14, it's this elaborate speech on like, listen, ladies, even if I got married this afternoon and had babies and they grew up and blah, blah, blah. And I, she, what, what is she saying to them? I can't take care of you. I can't provide you. Just go. It's bitter to me that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, she said. So they weep again, and Orpah kisses her mother-in-law. Ruth clings to her, and now these two ladies have a choice, and it's so fascinating. Have Orpah and Ruth, you know, do they love Naomi? Yeah. And have they heard of Naomi's God from Naomi? Obviously. And, and now they have this choice. And it's kind of the same choice Elimelech had in the beginning. If I stay in Bethlehem, which might be faithful, it could mean poverty. But I could go because that would look better. That would be easier. And now what, what's Orpah going to do? If Orpah stays with Naomi, Naomi's this old widowed woman, Orpah will be going as um, ethnically different, looked down upon probably, and would be committing herself to, as far as the eye can see, poverty. And so, and so Ruth says, stay, get married, have a life. And so Orpah's like, well, I could go and be in Israel and be under that God, or I can stay here in Moab, worship Chemosh, but have a good life. What does Orpah choose? She chooses what Elimelech chose, the obvious practical decision that leads to spiritual famine, and we never hear from her again. Ruth is different. And really, folks, in context, Ruth should blow your mind. She is one of the most amazing people in the entire Bible. And you realize that God has chosen a Moabitess to hold up before you as this incredible example. You'd never expect that in the context of Israel and the Old Covenant. So Naomi says, I want you to see this, look in verse 15. Naomi says to Ruth, go back. And in verse 15, it's, it's very interesting. She says, see, your sister has gone back to her people and to her what? Her gods. And then Naomi says, return after your sister-in-law. And friends, I think personally, this is evidence that Naomi has spent way too much time in Moab. Way too much time in Moab. Go back to your gods. What should Naomi be saying to Ruth in the storyline of the Bible? Naomi is a, is, is a part of Israel. She knows the true God and her entire existence is to glorify God to the nation so that they can see the beauty and the glory of the one true and the living God. That's why Naomi's on this earth. And what does she say to Ruth? <laughs> Just go back to Chemosh. Are you so bitter that you can't share the gospel anymore? That God doesn't seem beautiful to you anymore? You know, there are saints throughout the Old Testament who would rather die than go and serve Chemosh. And I hope I would be one of them. And I think this line actually triggers something in Ruth. Because Naomi says, go back to your gods. And Ruth, like, drops the hammer in verses 16 to 17, she takes over the story right here. 
Because she says, and, and the Hebrew is strong, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Now listen to this. These are famous words. We, we quote them at weddings. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And then she takes it further. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And then she does something very significant. She swears by the name of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. She says, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Whoa! This is a covenantal commitment. I'm committing to you, no matter the cost, to the end. I'm committing to your people, the people of Israel, no matter the cost, to the end. I'm committing to your place, Israel, where the, temper, where the tabernacle is, where the sacrifices are, where the priests are. No matter the cost, to the end. I am committed to your God, no matter the cost, to the end. I believe in him. I follow him. I'm accountable to him. I trust him. Bam. And where did that radical, massive, beautiful picture of conversion come from? Right in the middle of bitter times, bitter circumstances, and bitter regret. Do you see how God can redeem? One of the blessings of this book, there's no prophets, there's no kingdoms, there's no wars, there's no visions, there's nothing epic splendorific, it's horribly normal. Normal people living normal lives and the deep message of the book is right here. God is working. He's working. He's working. You know what that's supposed to do to you? Right in the middle of your bitter times, your bitter circumstances, even your bitter regret, guess what? He's still working. He's still working. And Ruth is this picture of redemption. She's been redeemed from the heart. Now, if you're, if you're gonna take notes, if you're gonna follow along with us, this is one of those themes you wanna grab, the idea of redeeming or the redeemer. What's it, what's it mean to redeem? Do you know that? It's something about buying something back. So something was lost and now it's stuck. It's in chains, it's broken, and there's a cost to be paid, and with that cost, you bring it back to where it was supposed to be. And so then you have characters called redeemers, and so a redeemer is something who takes this thing, this person who was in trouble, who was stuck, who was lost, and had his own cost. He buys that person back and now provides for them, cares for them, protects them. And so a redeemer reverses the situation. The situation was bitter, unpleasant, no hope. The redeemer changes that. The redeemed go from empty to full, despairing to satisfied, hopeless to secure. That's what the redeemer was. That's what the redeemer does. And friends, God redeems. Look at these themes just a little bit in Ruth. Look at Ruth 2.12. Uh, we'll, we'll meet Boaz next week. And here's what Boaz says to Ruth. The Lord repay you for what you have done. So he's amazed by her commitment to Naomi. He says, the Lord repay you for what you've done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. I like this next phrase. Under what? Whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
You like that idea? I guess it's the idea of a, of a mother bird protecting her chicks. If you got to get to the chicks, you, if you're going to get to the chicks, you got to come through me. That's what a redeemer does. How do you like the idea of being under the Lord's wings? Would you like the idea of the living God of creation saying, if you want to get to this one, you've got to come through me? Who's, who's going to get through him to you if he's your redeemer? Nobody. Nobody. And Ruth responds in kind, Ruth chapter 3. We'll get there, but just look at this theme. Ruth 3, nine. she answered, she's saying to Boaz now, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is what redeemers do. They take you out of trouble, out of hopelessness, and they spread their wings over you. And friends, throughout the Bible, guess who the redeemer par excellence is? Our God is the redeemer. That's what he does. Look at Isaiah 41, 14. We, I could give you lists of examples on God redeeming. Here's just one. I love this verse. It's my life verse. You have a life verse? Mine changes every week, but this is one today. Okay. Isaiah 41, 14. I love this. Here's why. Fear not you. You like that next word? Worm? Don't, don't you love God's love for you? What did he just drop on you? In the New Testament, he calls you sheep. That's not a compliment, okay? And in the Old Testament here, we have an example of worm. What are you supposed to take from worm? Are you ready to be humbled a little bit? You're not self-sufficient. The world is not about you. By God's standards, you're not a good person. You haven't kept the law. You haven't loved him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You haven't loved your neighbor as yourself. There's some serious weakness here. And, and, and in sin, you're lost to the penalty and power of sin without God saving you. You're a worm. And, and, and your first step to healing is to embrace that. Because look at God's promise. Fear not, you worm. Don't be afraid that your worminess will ruin everything because it won't. Fear not, you worm, you men of Israel. Why? Why? I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. I will bring you under my wings. In the midst of bitter times, circumstances, regret, God is a Redeemer, and he has redeemed Naomi, or yes, Naomi, but specifically here, Ruth. Another thing you got to grab onto, redeemers redeem with steadfast love. There's a word throughout this book, and uh, well, you want to learn, learn, this is why you pay the big dollars, right? You want to learn one Hebrew word, okay? Yes, you all do. I can tell you're all like, yes. Chesed. You want to try that on? You got to do it from down here. Chesed. Go ahead. Give it a shot. Chesed, okay? It means steadfast love. So it kind of sounds like what it means. It's not like cute. You know, it's chesed. How do you love me? God says chesed. Okay? Look at Psalm 118.1. Give thanks to the Lord for he's good. For his, his chesed endures forever. And, and let's just keep repeating it. Let Israel say his what? 
His hesed endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, the priests who serve him, his what? His hesed, his steadfast love endures forever. In fact, even if you're not of Israel or if you're not of Aaron, let, let those who fear the Lord say, what should we say? His hesed endures, how long? Forever. It's gutty, committed love that will never quit. That's what it is. That's what it is. And that's what redeemers show. And, and so we wonder, look, look how Ruth now exceeds Elimelech, Orpah, and Naomi. Unlike Elimelech, she does not fundamentally serve the practical. It does not make any economic sense for her to bind herself to an old widow with no children and go to a land of foreigners. It makes no sense. Why would she do that? Two reasons. Her heart longs for the living and true God, and his hesed for her has filled her with hesed for Naomi. That's what next week you're going to see. Ruth's hesed, committed and stubborn love for Naomi, that won't quit. It's amazing. When God redeems you with his steadfast love, he begins to transform you and fill you with steadfast love for his people. So she exceeds Elimelech. She acts based on hesed, not on the practical. Then unlike Orpah, right, is there any way Ruth is going back to Chemosh? No. Not doing it. She would rather have the living God who has redeemed her than the prospects of a husband in her own land. I'm, I, I'm amazed at this woman. Don't you want to have a heart like this woman's heart? Devoted to the God who has redeemed her. Devoted to his people. And even this, unlike Naomi, Ruth is not fundamentally bitter. Listen, I don't want to judge Naomi. I don't even know what it's like to suffer like she suffered. But hasn't Ruth suffered a little too? Didn't she lose a husband? She was with him for a while. We're not sure how long. She never had children either. She suffered. And yet, is the environment of her heart bitterness? Or is it commitment to steadfast love? That's what it is. She's doggedly committed to Naomi. So we've seen the bitterness, bitter times, bitter circumstances, bitter regret, but we've also seen the surprise. In the midst of this, God redeems, and the ultimate picture of this is Ruth in her heart. That takes us to the return. This will be our last point. So they return, and you see this in verse 18. There was a great stir. I mean, you, you can imagine, right? It's a small town. Think of us. We're a small church. Imagine a member who's been here forever, leaves with her husband and two children, comes back 10 years later. We haven't heard from them at all. Husband, two children are dead. And so we're like, oh, she's back, and we give you a hug, and you're like, don't even hug me. Don't even hug me. My life's bitter. But you know, the narrator shows us something. I'll just... In, ver in verses 18 and 19, you get, uh, verse 19, the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was served because of them. When the, narrator, when the Hebrew narrator does something for you like that, he's, he's trying to get you to pay attention, right? Them, them, they, then, then. How many people came back to Bethlehem? 
too, okay? And then when they talk, the women say, is this Naomi? Now, some commentators, they're like, okay, that makes sense, but who do they not seem to talk about? Who's not there somehow? Ruth, how come you don't think they would talk about her? She's a Moabitess. We don't like their kind. Moreover, when Naomi speaks in verses 20 to 21, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, the Lord has brought me back empty. Now, I'll be, I'll be Naomi, okay, and you be Ruth, okay? The Lord has brought me back with absolutely nothing. God has left me empty, Ruth. Can I have another tissue? Thanks. You know. What did Naomi say when Ruth said, I give my life to you? The Hebrew literally says, she said nothing. Wouldn't you get like a, wow, thanks. What's going on with Naomi? She's too bitter to see what she still has. She's too bitter to see what she still has. But you know what? In God's kindness, guess what? She'll see it. She'll see it. And it will be Ruth's hesed for her that helps her see it. And so the call is, and Naomi's just started this journey, the call is to return. To return to your Redeemer. To return for your, to your Redeemer. Let me give you three ways to return and we'll be done. Number one, maybe you're asking the question, how can I know the living God is my Redeemer and not just my judge? And I'm glad you're asking that question because that's an important question. Uh, there's something you have to have for God to be Redeemer, your Redeemer and not your judge. If, if you're going to stand before God based on your own good works, your own rebellion, in that context, he's not your Redeemer. He's your judge. And that's dangerous, a dangerous place to be. There's one way you can know God is your redeemer. What is a church? Look at Galatians 4, 4 to 7. Galatians 4, 4 to 7. The apostle there writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Now, you remember? Remember how in, in, uh, in, the, in the Ruth text it said, The Lord visited his people and brought food? Has God visited? Has God come? Always come. The eternal Son of God has taken on flesh and come, and his name is Jesus. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to what? Verse 5, to what? Redeem those who were under the law. So the law is, the, is, is God's standard for how I'm to live and be right with him. I've broken that, and so I'm lost. I'm in slavery. I'm under condemnation. I can't get out. I'm hopeless, and I need a redeemer, one who will come and buy me back at, the, at his own cost and put me under his wings, and that redeemer is Jesus Christ. He came and lived the perfect life, and it bought me the righteousness I need. He came and died on the cross in my place, and it bought me the forgiveness that I need. He came and rose from the dead for me, and it bought me the adoption. I'm a child of God. Look, he redeems those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, what? Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave. Your son, your daughter, and you're an 
heir. Do you know what an heir means? You inherit God and his eternal kingdom. Has God redeemed you? Is God your redeemer? Have you trusted yourself to Jesus Christ? If you've repented of your sins and you trust Jesus, you can know you've been redeemed. You have been redeemed and you're an heir. You're an adopted child. You are loved. You're under the wings of the almighty God. Second, trust that your sovereign God is working through the bitterness. First, trust Jesus. Second, trust that your sovereign God is working through the bitterness. Have you thought about this? You know what happens to Naomi if her husband and sons never die? She stays in Moab. And she's probably worshiping Chemosh. Is God's kindness ever bitter? Does God ever use bitter things to be very kind? He does. I'm I'm not going to stand up here like I'm like, oh, isn't it great when God uses bitter things to be kind? Listen, it's bitter. (laughs) I know it's bitter. It tastes terrible. It's hard. God, what are you doing? I thought you. I thought we were friends. Then you look back. I know I'm going long, but I got to tell you this little, I was on an airplane once and I was praying to God as having kind of an identity crisis. And I was like, God, how come you haven't given me these things that I long for that are good, uh, that I want? And it's one of those few times where you feel like God like told you something. That doesn't happen to me a lot. But it just, and it went something like this. If I had given you all those things when you wanted them, your pride would have gone nuclear. And you needed humility. So what do you want? You want to stay a Christian? You want to not ruin your life? Then take this medicine. It's bitter. And in the bitterness, I'll redeem you. There's a guy named William Cowper who wrote uh, his hymn, and he studied, he's, he uh, had huge depression. It's kind of his famous hymn. Look at this verse. William Cowper says, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Do you know what feeble sense is? Feeble sense is when you understand everything God's doing in your life because you're as smart as he is, right? What is your sense? Remember, Israel, you're a worm. Your sense is feeble. You don't see it all. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. He redeems. Trust Jesus Trust that God is working your redemption. Look, what, look how Jesus talks about when he returns. I don't know how it's going to work in the, in the circumstances of your life, right? Nobody's going to receive some amazing things. God does amazing things in our lives. But ultimately, when is the redemption we're looking for? Look at Luke 21, 27. Jesus says this, They will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, what do you want to do? Straighten up. Okay? Lift your head. Why? Your redemption is drawing near. When he comes back, when we see his face, we're in the new heavens and the new earth. There it is. It's coming. Finally, the last thing to do to return. 
receive God's covenantal chesed love for you as a redeemer and show it to his people. Isn't that what Ruth shows us? Ruth could have gone back to what was pragmatic or she could have been lost in bitterness like Naomi, but you know what she did instead? She loved like a pit bull. She, she grabbed on hard and she won't let go. And even when Naomi's like, I don't have anything, and Ruth's like, hi, I'm here. Ruth isn't like, oh, I'm leaving. Israel's full of hypocrites. You know what she does the next day? She goes out and gleans food for Naomi, who's unthankful. She's, what's, what's the adjective for this? She's dogged for steadfast love because she's been loved steadfastly. Friends, what does Jesus say to, say to do to us? How's the world going to see we belong to him? Look at John 13, 34 to 35. A new commandment I give to you that you what? Love. Who? The really nice, vague Christians out there that you have some sort of an idea of, but you never actually interact with, right? They're so easy to love. No, no, who, who does he call you to love? One another. A new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. Oh, have mercy. How has he loved you? Hesed, steadfast love, redeeming love to a cross. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another by, the verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You remember what Israel was supposed to do? Show all the nations the glory and beauty of God. Now look at what the church is doing. We're showing all the nations the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ as we love one another as we have been loved. How should we respond to bitterness? Bitter times, bitter circumstances, bitter regret. How should we respond? Remember that God redeems his people in, through, and from bitterness Trust Jesus Christ. Trust that God is working and love one another as you have been loved. Amen? Let's pray. Father, it's a big word. Thanks for giving us endurance to hear it. We pray that it would hit home. Hit home, Lord. I pray for those who don't, don't really know you. They're just kind of looking in. From the outside, I pray that you'd reveal yourself to them and show them who you are as a redeemer. They would want Jesus Christ. They would, they would no longer want the, the chemosh of their lives, that they would want Christ so badly. They, they'd look to him and trust him, be saved, be forgiven, be adopted, brought in as your children. I also pray, Lord, that as we go through the, 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 the struggles and trials of life, which are many and painful, Lord, we remember um, you're working. You're working. You're working redemption, and ultimately, Lord, help us love one another, even when we don't deserve it, especially when we don't deserve it. For your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, our Redeemer, amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.